This episode is brought to you by Fully Gemstones. It is my opinion that the sapphire in the centre of the coronet, for those of you that go to the V&A where it has been on display now for nearly three years and it has its own cabinet and it is the Victoria and Albert Museum and it is the joint venture by Victoria and Albert. I think the sapphire in the centre of that is Edward the Confessor's sapphire. Welcome to With Jewels Could Talk. I'm Carol Walton, the voice of jewellery, an author, broadcaster, and the woman who initiated the role of jewellery editor at magazines like Tatler and British Vogue. This is a podcast for everyone, for people who do like jewellery, for people who don't realise they like jewellery, and anyone intrigued by fascinating facts, new ideas, and forgotten histories. So please join me as I tell sparkly tales, meeting all sorts of people, delving into four centuries of jewellery culture and investigate what's happening now. Today we're talking about Queen Victoria, sentimentality, crown jewels and the coronet. We're all in a bit of coronation fever in England as that's approaching the coronation of King Charles III. And I thought for this episode it's really good to kind of scroll back and talk about Queen Victoria's legacy. I'm delighted to be joined today by John Hawkins, who is joining me from Tasmania in Australia and is responsible for having created some of the world's greatest collections of decorative arts. He's supplied many historic items to the world's leading institutions and museum. He's the author of numerous books and catalogues. He exhibits his collections around the world and is a specialist in the culture and history of jewellery. John, thank you for joining us. Pleasure. Pleasure, Carol. Last time we did this, we had a storm and was hopeless. And this time we've got no storm, we're away. Because storms on Tasmania, where you are, just wipe everything out, don't they? Yeah, well, we're at the end of the earth down here. There's only one road between me and the South Pole, so that's how far south we are. (laughs) So now, Queen Victoria um, died 22nd of January 1901 at Osborne House on the Isle of Wight. And four days later, the crown jeweller Henry Bell at Garrard received a telegram which said, come at once. He had been summoned to sort and allocate the jewellery left by the Queen. She left a lot to children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren. But also she had designated many of her jewels to be crown jewels and to be held in trust for future queens of England. So they would automatically carry on and go to successors. And we'll find out later why this is really important. And it was kind of groundbreaking. And the list was redolent of her attitude to the importance of jewellery in her life as a woman and a monarch. Really, it was quite dominated by um, meanings, association and sentiment. And I thought she also had a very important sapphire and diamond coronet, of which John is um, the world's leading expert, which we will talk about a bit later and will discover has a direct and very surprising impact, possibly for the coronation, in a couple of weeks' time. But John, first of all, apart from her objects of majesty, I feel like her jewellery, like most women's jewellery boxes, marked the transition of various stages of their life. It went from a girl to a young queen, from a wife to a widow, 
the, the jewels mark her passage through the rites of life, as it were, marriage, childbirth, widowhood. And I suppose in a way that, that made her a sort of model for her subjects because they could all really identify with that. Well, she was lucky to have a husband who was clever and artistic and was the driving force of her life. She inherited the throne at 19. Now, if you think back to how you were at 19 or how I was at 19, the greatest empire in the world and the most powerful ruler in the world was a 19-year-old girl who'd shared a bedroom with her mother until she was 18. When she started her reign as a sovereign, as a 19-year-old girl, she was married to him shortly afterwards, two or three years later. By 1842, he was designing coronets, brooches, and he played a part in the designing of the Coburg jewels given to her bridesmaids. That was probably the first time he had any influence over what was happening in Queen Victoria's jewellery cabinet. And there were 12 bridesmaids at their wedding. They each got a wonderful Coburg eagle set with turquoise with a Hanoverian pearl in each claw as it held out its feet facing the person. I don't think anybody thought too much about the little pearls that came from Hanover. Anyway, 12 times brooches is 24 pearls went into the talons of the Coburg eagles designed by her husband. And I think that was the first thing he actually designed for her. And they had quite kind of what some people would think of quite macabre taste. I mean, they collected, they had a lot of children, um, but they collected all their baby teeth, didn't they? And, and Albert set those into jewels. Well, um, my mother was absolutely hopeless about my teeth. They were pulled out by a piece of <laughs> cotton and a large mahogany door, which was slammed by my father. And I never saw it again. But at least you had the chance with Queen Victoria because she was quite sentimental. And she had started a fashion of mounting her children's milk teeth, baby teeth, as jewels, and she used to wear them on each child's birthday so that they were fully uh, accepted on their birthday as part of their passage through life. But that's quite a, a German idea, which came like the Christmas tree from Prince Albert. Santa Claus is German, of course. Father Christmas came into the lives of the British people, the empire and all the colonies, thanks to Prince Albert. I think a lot of what they did got taken up more widely because I suppose there was at that moment a rapid growth of print and visual culture. The court circular in the Times reported on what she wore, her costume, her jewellery, pretty much every day. And it was the sort of beginning of mass media. So I guess everything kind of copied the monarch in what she was wearing. Well, the morning jewellery is quite interesting and it's a much older fashion than Queen Victoria. I owned a Nelson Memorial morning jewel. I've owned a Byron one uh, in my lifetime so far. But they go back to the 18th century and you left a sum in your will uh, to be spent at your funeral on giving rings to your friends who attended the funeral uh, to wear as a memory of you as an individual. It's one way to get people to turn up to your funeral, to have a good congregation. Especially as, as a Nelson <laughs> ring today is probably worth twenty to £25,000. So if you collected mm -hmm. one of those, that was quite a worthwhile operation. But she was in a different field to that. She wore 
jet and Irish black bog oak because they were black, because it suited her widow's weeds, because she only wore black, because uh, she was in deep mourning for the rest of her life. Basically, colour disappeared, didn't it? From her jewellery, from her costume, it went... Well, the Morrison family made their enormous fortune out of controlling the supplies of black velvet for royal funerals. And it's a nice way to make money. And she was the greatest patron they ever had. (laughs) Because she instituted years of mourning and years of wearing black. And really, it's what... I suppose what has gone down as sort of Victoriana, hasn't it, in people's imaginations from that time? I suppose so. They, I mean, the royal couple went to Ireland and she admired the Erin harp and Erin jewels and he commissioned a whole suite of Irish black bog oak jewellery just because it was interesting. And when they went to Scotland, she... Uh, enters in her diary, my beloved Albert gave me a lovely brooch which is so original in its design and which I am delighted with. In this entry, on the 10th of February 1843, a young Queen Victoria recorded a special gift presented to her by Prince Albert. It was a circular gold disc centred with a garnet surrounded by ten turrets, each set with a Scottish freshwater pearl. On the reverse is an inscription from Albert, November the 21st, 1842, which reveals the motive of the gift, the date marking exactly two years since the christening of their first daughter and first child, Princess Victoria. This was a copy of the brooch of lawn. I have owned this brooch and I've sold it to a client of mine. And the brooch of lawn has a fantastic history, which I think in a part is uh, invented, but basically... It was supposedly taken when they burnt a castle on the west coast of Scotland. The MacDougall chiefs obtained the brooch 600 years ago. It was then hidden and vanished and reappeared in Victorian times. That was another big fashion they started, wasn't it? When they became obsessed by Scotland and all its... Um, history and mysteries after the purchase of the Balmoral Estate in 1847. And and they started collecting deer's teeth too, didn't they? Just to supplement their own children's teeth and setting those. Well, I think in the stalking business, the eye teeth of deer are quite interesting. It was quite a Victorian fashion. Started probably at uh, Blair Athol by the Duke of Athol, where there is a fantastic parure of deer jewellery on display. I think another very romantic gift was when he recreated, on her wedding day, she wore a big sapphire and diamond brooch that he'd given her and a big diamond necklace and earrings, but she had just on her head a kind of wreath of orange blossom flowers. And he recreated that, didn't he, into... um, a brooch, earrings, and and a wreath headpiece. Well, the orange blossom tiara is actually one of the more famous tiaras. It's particularly unusual. It started with the tiara, then he made up a parure of bits and pieces by giving her, using the orange blossom theme, basically from 1839 for their wedding when she wore it. By 1846, he completed the um, parure. The flowers of the orange are depicted in Parian wear, white Perian wear by Minton, and they have uh, frosted gold stems. Basically porcelain. Yeah, 
And it's a very nice, unusual, interesting idea. But John, she liked tiaras, didn't she? I mean, she was quite petite. She was under five foot. And actually, anyone listening who hasn't been to the V&A Museum, we're going to talk about her sapphire and diamond coronet in a minute, which has been saved for the nation and on display. And it's actually at the height she would have worn it. So you can really see how petite she was. And do you think the tiaras were important because they gave her height and a more regal presence? Because otherwise, you know, without that, she might not be noticed. She was painted in a whole series of interesting uh, tiaras. Uh, she had the, the ruby circlet. She had a magnificent emerald tiara. And she had the coronet, which is strictly not quite a tiara because it joins at the back. And she wore it as a bun. And she had the orange blossom one. So she had quite a nice sequence, and she didn't mind being painted in them, of tiaras that gave her that regal presence outside the state crowns, which a crown has arches. A tiara doesn't have arches. And crowns are very difficult to wear. But she wore that light one, which she had specifically made, which travelled on her coffin when she died, which was a really beautiful, small, petite crown. But the one that she liked was her sapphire and diamond coronet. That meant an um, awful lot to her because it was, again, designed by her husband. So that's why it meant so much to her. And it was, I imagine, light. She didn't want heavy... Heavy crowns, did she? Well, she was quite fashion conscious when she was young and so adventurous. And to wear a, a bun with a coronet on it, which was her state portrait, that's how she was painted. That's how she wanted to be painted, not like all her predecessors who were uh, men in their uniforms and garbs with the crown on a table alongside them and that. She just wanted something youthful and feminine. And that was the image that she wanted to portray to the world, which was in the coinage, was in her painted image. Um, and it's very nice. It's sort of feminine and lovely. And uh, I think she was a remarkable queen. And she, her life was dashed when she lost her husband. Why do you think jewels were such a significant part of Queen Victoria's life? That question is quite easy to answer, I think, because... She was a woman, and under Salic law, the Hanoverian jewels, which were the backbone of the British royal collection, could not be inherited by a woman. So she fought a long and arduous battle against her father's brother, who had managed to get the throne of Hanover and was pressing a claim for the Hanoverian jewels to be returned to Hanover, together with the Hanoverian silver purchased by her grandfather, George III. So when she came to the throne, she had to be particularly careful that she did not put into any item of jewellery that she wished to keep any item that could be traced back to the Hanoverian succession when George I, the German-speaking English monarch, took over the throne. So she started basically on the premise that she could only use jewels or stones that predated the Hanoverian accession to the British throne. Basically, the only stones she could use in the royal collection was Stuart or earlier. And that mm -hmm. rather restricted the access because 
we had a Commonwealth under Cromwell, and Cromwell wanted to destroy any possible chance of a Stuart sovereign regaining the throne, and he melted for the gold and sold it the crowns of England that went back another 500 years and sold all the stones. So the restoration of the monarchy under Charles II saw the requirement to remake the crown jewels in their entirety. She muddied the waters. She made it particularly difficult, naturally enough, for her uncle to claim the Hanoverian jewels. Now, the situation was very complex because George III's wife went to an enormous amount of trouble to ensure that the wishes of her husband, who'd gone mad and was locked up in the tower at Windsor Castle, would be abided by him. And that was that he had the right to determine where the Hanoverian jewels went. Before he went mad, he knew that he had one granddaughter, Princess Charlotte. Now, that one granddaughter would not have been able, under the Hanoverian succession, to inherit the Hanoverian jewels. And his wife boxed every single item and annotated its origin, whether they were Hanoverian, where they come from, and what their history was, and put brass plates on 17 large trunks and boxes which covered the jewellery either given to her or inherited by her husband, George III. When the Prince Regent, who was a rule unto himself and a total law unto himself, knew that his mother was dying, she smelt trouble. And she added a codicil to her will, which said, should her husband recover, he would have the right to determine the future of the Hanoverian jewels. And on her death, he immediately took charge through the crown jewellers, Garrards, of all the 17 oak trunks and boxes which contained the jewels. And he had the brass plates removed so that nobody would know the history of the jewels that they contained. Therefore, his daughter would not be put in the invidious position of having to fight over what was what. Furthermore, he decided that he was entitled to all the contents of the boxes, whether they were Hanoverian, whether they were property of George III, whether they were the property of his mother. And he made a very good and thorough job of muddying the waters. And he took from the Crown of England the principal stones. The fact is that previous monarchs used the jewels, especially, as you say, the Prince Regent, as if they were their personal accoutrement to take, use, reset as they wished. Queen Victoria really put an end to that. So she was groundbreaking in the way she wanted a stable crown jewel collection that she could then give to her successors. They were stable. She stopped the Hanoverian way of loaning jewels to fill empty skeletons of crowns and tiaras. She wanted the diamond diadem of George IV set with stones. And it really was a great symbol of stability and monarchy, wasn't it, for the future? She had, for her coronation, the state crown, only later became an imperial state crown, reset. She managed to get back a large number of the more principal stones which had been removed by George IV and given in particular to his daughter and had them put back into the crown of England. There are two great crowns in British history, Edward the Confessor crown, 
or St. Edward's crown, because he was made a saint, the only sovereign who was ever made a saint, and the state crown. And there have been various variations on the state crown, because the sovereign could do whatever he wanted with the state crown. But the coronation crown was a fixture, and still is a fixture, and St. Edward's crown is the coronation crown designed for Charles II. But the imperial, let's call it what it is today, imperial state Mm, crown, crown. is a property, basically, of the sovereign to do with as they wish. They can rearrange the stones, they can make it an entirely different uh, crown. It has happened between every single reign. The sovereign has changed the crown and the jewels and the stones in it. But the jewels and the stones in the imperial state crown are the property of the nation, and they are lodged with the crowns in the Tower of London. So that's always been um, stable, always been stable. Well, except George the Fourth diadem was not stable, because it, it didn't have stones in it until Queen Victoria made it permanent. The stones came and went, didn't they? Well, this is becoming another complex matter. These, these matters are not easy to describe, but the crown which was made as a third crown for George IV at his coronation, which was to be worn around the streets after the coronation on the way back to the palace. The main attraction to that was the stones that he stole from his mother. And he (laughs) hired all the stones for that crown, basically from Garrard's. But the principal stones were the Arcot diamonds. And the Arcot diamonds were a gift from an Indian prince whose principality was Arcot, in 1777 to George III's wife, or to George III who gave them to his wife. And she had a box specifically for the Arcot diamonds. And when she died, as I said, the uh, lids to the boxes with the description on them, what was to be done with them. In this case, the Arcot diamonds were to be sold and the money given to her four daughters to keep them going as they had no income except from the sovereign. And the principal stones in his third crown, worn after he was crowned with the coronation crown, after he wore the state crown, were the crown he wore to his processing afterwards. And that diamond crown was set with the Arcot diamonds. That was the game changer for people like Queen Victoria when their time came. And the moment she had access to do, as a sovereign, what she wished, she implemented her grandmother's wishes, which was that the Arcot diamonds would be sold and the proceeds would go to her aunts. And that's what happened. So all these things have many different facets. and Many different. And we're going to see how the Queen Consort will change her crown, even though she's going to be using Queen Mary's crown, She's going to have the Cullinan 3 and 4, which is the massive brooch, um, taken apart and put in the crown for her coronation. So as you said, they can slightly shift things around and make it within their own um, desire for their coronation. The Cullen diamond, once the sovereign owned it, she could do what she wished with it or he could do what he wished with it. And what happened was Edward VII, because it came in his reign, got Mr. Asher, who was the cleverest diamond cutter in Amsterdam to cut the diamond to take the principal stone and put it in the crown of England 
And the first time he hit the 3,000 carat diamond with the chipper and the hammer on the anvil, nothing happened and he fainted. And he came to again and he had another go and he broke it into exactly the parts that he thought it would break into. And the Cullinan diamond was then placed in the crown and the chips, as the Queen always called them, were worn by her for her own personal jewels. It is very complicated, as you say, the ownership part. But I think at this coronation, we'll pretty much see the Cullinan come together because we've got Cullinan 1 and 2 in the Auburn sector and we'll have 3 and 4 in the Crown. Yes, I think the Cullinan will come together. And it's an extraordinary thing that um, it was gifted to the sovereign by South Africa after the Boer War when it was discovered there. And I suppose it's the biggest and most famous stone of all. And that was a gift to the Crown. And the Crown got many gifts and Queen Victoria, to get back to her, was in receipt of many gifts from various places. So her coffers were filled by the time she died. She did spend at Garrard, didn't she? They've got huge ledgers of of the jewels that she commissioned. And as you say, she was fortuitous as the head of an empire that she was given a lot of jewels. So she could make these replacements of the lost Hanoverian jewels and the regalia that had been lost to her. And do you think that uh, she was sort of really investing in a way in the British throne because she she wanted to create this statement and she wanted it to be passed on? No, I don't think so. I think that basically the jewels that she commissioned from Garrard's were fun. And mm-hmm. when she got a big gift from some powerful potentate, uh, like the emeralds, um, she made them into the most wonderful coronets. And that was her property. And that went to her descendants in her will and was not uh, national property. So the Hanoverian jewels were bought by George III from the Hanoverian royal family uh, for £50,000 in 1760, which is an enormous amount of money, unbelievable amount of money. And the pearls that his wife, Queen Charlotte, wore were fantastic. There's no other word for it. They, Queen Victoria never had pearls to touch those. And they all went back to Hanover. And the, generally, the stones that they had were the same. Absolutely fantastic. And they all went back to Hanover. And she never had jewels on that scale, which were Hanoverian. So she only had basically two great uh, jewels commissioned and designed, both of them by her husband, and both in major portraits, the emerald one and the sapphire and diamond coronet. And both were her personal property and both were left to the family and have descended outside the royal family and have got away from the royal family. And the one which we were going to discuss, have we got enough time to discuss it? We do. And I want to hear this because I know you are the world expert on this coronet and have done so much research. And some of it is very controversial. And I'd like you to share it with us, John. All right. Well, the um, uh, sapphire and diamond coronet is what we're now going to discuss. And that's the one that she wore um, as her fashion statement as the sovereign in her state portrait. And 
It is my opinion that the sapphire in the centre of the coronet, for those of you that go to the V&A, where it has been on display now for nearly three years, and it has its own cabinet, and it is the Victoria and Albert Museum, and it is the joint venture by Victoria and Albert. I think the sapphire in the centre of that is Edward the Confessor's sapphire. And this is controversial because people believe that St Edward's sapphire is in the imperial state crown. Well, the problem occurs with George IV removing the stones from the state crown and he gave to his daughter, who he assumed one day would be queen, who died in childbirth, Princess Charlotte, the Black Prince's ruby and... Edward the Confessor Sapphire, and there is a portrait of her wearing them in the coronet. So they were removed from the crown. Those two stones have a wonderful history. He was a great historian, the Prince Regent stroke George IV, and he had a tremendous interest and knowledge of British history. Now, if we go back to the only 800-year-old spinel, the Black Prince's ruby, that was in the top of the crown of Henry VIII. And there are plenty of, well not plenty, but a number of illustrations of Henry VIII. This is the Tudor crown, which was destroyed by Cromwell, with the ballast ruby, which is what it is. It's a ballast spinel, it's not actually a ruby. On the top of his crown, the Black Prince's ruby hasn't got anywhere near the history and the importance of Edward the Confessor's sapphire. Edward the Confessor is the only British sovereign who was made a saint. He was buried after his death in 1066 in Westminster Abbey. In a, well, it wasn't an abbey then, but within the confines of a Benedictine abbey as the patron of the abbey. And he was dug up a hundred years later and moved because they were going to build a bigger abbey. Then he was dug up again a second time. He was dug up three times altogether or removed from the tomb. But on the second occasion, the coffin was opened and his body was exhumed. And wearing on his finger a ring with a sapphire in it. And there was a tradition that that sapphire was a Roman ring which had belonged to his family It had been given away, and if it ever returned to England, the sovereign would die within six months. And he did die within six months of the return of the sapphire to England. But it was an intaglio-cut sapphire, and it appears for the first time in British history in the Wilton Dittich. Now, the Wilton Dittich is on display in the National Gallery, and you can go and see it in its cabinet all to itself, And it displays the jewels of ancient England, the crowns of ancient England. And three of them are being worn by those shown in that diptych. So we know what his crown looked like, but Cromwell melted all those crowns. So the thousand-year history was broken. But it was broken before that because Henry VIII had trouble with women, and he needed to get the system of getting divorced established. Now, he couldn't do that through the Catholic Church, so he made himself head of the Church of England, created the Church of England, 
and he removed the two most important stones in Britain. One was Edward and the Confessor's Sapphire from Westminster Abbey, where it had been on display for nearly 300 years, and you could kiss the ring or touch the ring, and you would be blessed by it because it was a saintly object because he'd been canonised. So he removed that and took that for himself, had the intaglio cut out and had it mounted by Holbein together with the ruby from Thomas of Becket's tomb in Canterbury Cathedral. So he was wearing the two great saintly stones in his ring on his finger. And if you look at any portrait of Henry VIII, or nearly all of them, you can see the two stones set alongside each other in the ring that he wore. And that stone went through the hands eventually of Queen Elizabeth, who wore it on her forehead as the most powerful stone in England, with a fantastic history. Well, the sapphire was the conduit for the first Scottish king, James I of England and James VI of Scotland, when Queen Elizabeth knew that she was going to die, on her deathbed she sent him the ring containing the sapphire. But by the time Charles I had it, it had been known as St Edward the Confessor's Stone. It vanished and it was taken by the Stuarts to France and then on to Rome. And the last Stuart was Benedict, Cardinal Duke of York. He ran out of money and he had two great English stones from the crown jewels. Edward the Confessor's Sapphire, the small stone, and he had the enormous Stuart rectangular sapphire. And Coutts, the great Thomas Coutts, the great English banker, informed the Prince Regent that there was an opportunity to acquire them and the Prince Regent said, OK, we'll buy them. So when he was in Rome, he paid £4,000 and an annuity to Cardinal Benedict, Duke of York, and the stones returned to England from the Catholic side of the Stuart family, and they were put in the state crown of George IV, with which he was crowned. But once he'd been crowned with it, he raided it for all the stones. And there is a painting in the royal collection for those that you are interested in these matters, the late Queen did a fantastic job doing an inventory of the Royal Collection. And that inventory is photographic and descriptive. So you can go Princess Charlotte Portrait Miniature and Royal Collection RCT Trust, and you can see it. And there is the Ballast Ruby, 800 years old, and underneath it, Edward the Confessor's Sapphire a thousand years old, the oldest stone in Christendom. And she has both of them in her coronet. Now, he had to return the ballast ruby, but I don't think he put the sapphire back into the crown of England. He put another sapphire into it. When she died, the race was on amongst all the royal princes yes. to find an heir. And the Duke of Kent, who was 50 and a bit of a rake, to put it mildly, married another German princess, and within a year they had a child, and that child was Victoria, so she never met Charlotte. But Victoria would have known that somehow that Belgian had control of that stone, in my opinion. 
the King of the Belgians, who was married to Charlotte. And I think, in a way, if she had it in her coronet, he had to return the obvious one, but the smaller little sapphire in the top of the crown was not so obvious. And there are two crowns still surviving. And one had the original sapphire in it, and one didn't. And both the empty crowns with no stones in them are in the Tower of London. And what needs to be done is the sapphire, it might have been recut slightly to make it more feminine, I don't know. But Queen Victoria needed to have gravitas in her coronet if she was not going to wear the imperial state crown, as it was called by her, rebuilt by Garrard's at considerable expense, with all the correct stones that belonged in it back in it. But if she was just going to wear the coronet, why were just a little group of sapphires? But if you knew that it was the oldest stone in Christendom, then it gave you what you needed. You didn't have to tell anybody, but the family, Leopold could have told her, I don't know how she knew, but that gave her the feeling of real power that she could have that in the centre of her coronet. And if nobody knew about it, and only she knew about it, that was wonderful. And I think that is St Edward's, the confessor's sapphire, removed from his tomb. I think another piece of your evidence, you said that when it was made, there was no cost included in the ledger's for the purchase of the sapphires. So that leads you to believe they were already owned. She didn't have to... The the costing of the coronet was just for the making of the coronet and the diamonds that were put in it. But the sapphires were given by the sovereign to Garrards to mount up. Now, whether they recut them, reset them from another piece of jewellery, Charlotte of Mecklenburg-Strelitz, the wife of George III, who went to so much trouble to make sure none of these things lost their history and were in their oak boxes with their brass plates when the Prince Regent, before he became George IV, had all those brass plates removed and the boxes unpacked and muddled the waters so that no one would know because he had a daughter about, and he knew about Salic succession, the Salic law. And a woman couldn't take the Hanoverian thing, so they would go back to Hanover. He kept those little bits and pieces separate. And they descended to Victoria through William IV, but mainly through her father, who was another son of George III, the Duke of Kent. It's very interesting and very complicated, as you said, because there's always this situation of what's royal, what's not, what can they take and use and pass down on a different line. So you've, how long have you spent researching the coronet? Well, I acquired it and sold it to a client of mine outside the United Kingdom. And when I applied for the export licence, of course, it met all three of the Waverley criteria and it was stopped. But the family I sold it to were still quite happy to keep it in England and wear it from time to time, because it's not an easy thing to wear. You have to have a special occasion, and there aren't many occasions when you can wear such a beautiful thing. When it was pointed out that under British law, if you died, even if you were a non-resident, your assets in England are subject to probate, it becomes a thing you have to consider with real purpose. So you might wear it once, and then, whatever the probate is now, 40% of the value of the object, which is considerable, 
would go to the British government and you'd still never be able to take it out of the country anyway. It seemed better to accept the money that was found by the British government and a major donor who is the great sponsor behind the Bollinger Jewellery Gallery in the V&A, which is absolutely fabulous. And it's wonderful to see a family make that sort of commitment to Britain to finance and run. And Richard Edgecombe, who was the curator for many years, was one of the great curators at any British institution whose life was devoted entirely to the benefit of that institution. And the Bollingers are to be congratulated for making such fantastic gifts to the British nation uh, to fund its creation, maintenance, and from time to time, major purchases. You've handled this coronet. You've looked at the sapphires. Did you feel that that central sapphire was different, was older than the other sapphires? They're totally different. The sapphires that are either side of what I'm going to call Edward the Confessor's sapphire are far finer in colour than the central stone. The central stone is a historic stone which, as I said before, has been larger, has had, under Henry VIII, the intaglio cut out of it, because it's not quite the thing to go with the ruby on... (laughs) Beckett's ruby on his finger. So it changed its status, but it's a much older stone, and it has the enamel on it, which signifies that at least it's the sapphire in the Grissoni image which is 1716. So it was in the Crown of England, which was made and adapted for the first Hanoverian king, George I, the German-speaking king. So you think it's considerably older than the other sapphires? Yes. And how could, how could you prove your theory? Is there any way to prove the theory? <laughs> um, I'm sure that Queen Victoria wasn't going to uh, state to the world that she had in her coronet the sapphire. How it came to be there um, was anybody's guess. And whether I'm right or wrong is still anybody's guess. And no one writes these things down. It should be in the Crown of England, and it's not. So what is in the Crown of England? What is in the Imperial State Crown then? When we see it, when the King wears it to and from the Abbey, what will we be looking at? It is a sapphire, you know, and it's not a vast sapphire. It's not like... um, the Stuart Sapphire, which is underneath, or now it's round the back because the uh, Cullinan's in the front, but it's not famous for size. It's famous for history, whereas the Spinel is famous for size, and the Stuart Sapphire is a magnificent size of sapphire. But this is a tiny... If Henry VIII can wear it with another stone on his ring finger... Um, and he needed all the help he could get to get through those pearly gates. He had a pretty good, strong record. <laughs> Rupert Murdoch would have had a field day with him. <laughs> <laughs> so it was his lucky charm. But So you think another old sapphire was put in there and now it's gone down in history that that is the St Edward's sapphire? That's my opinion. I can't prove it. I might be totally wrong. And I might be guessing or grasping at straws, but if it wasn't in Charlotte's coronet under the spinel, then I just feel 
there's no way that the sapphire in the crown of England isn't Edward the Confessor's sapphire. But the fact that she wore it, it escaped the crown, and the Prince Regent has a pretty good record for being somewhat devious with royal stones and royal jewel. And it was his daughter, and he thought she would be queen, and he wouldn't have had to hand it over under the Hanoverian succession, Salic law, but at least she had something great, his daughter. Uh, but he couldn't get away with the spinel, which is vast. And you think Queen Victoria knew, and she took the secret to her grave. Absolutely. <laughs> if only Jules could talk, John. I know. We would be able to. <laughs> I know. We could find this out. <laughs> it would be wonderful, but I don't think we can prove it, but we can suggest it with a reasonable modicum of authority. Well, thank you very much for sharing this mystery with us. And um, we're going to look very, very carefully at the Imperial State Crown, some of us lining the route, some of us on television, um, but we'll, we'll certainly be looking at it with more interest and care than we would have before this podcast. Good. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure doing it. Thank you for listening. For this and other episodes of If Jules Could Talk, please go to our website, carolwalton.com slash podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast feed because you won't want to miss any of our coronation specials that are coming up in the next couple of weeks. And please leave us a rating and a comment. For more information about our sponsors, please go to foodiegemstones.com and join us again in two weeks for the next Jeweled Nugget when we will be talking with Susie Menkes, the world's most renowned fashion journalist. Susie is the author of the definitive work about the royal jewels. She is fashion. She is the benchmark by which all others are judged. Few come close in authority, experience, judgment and hairdo. So says Stephen Jones, the milliner, and he couldn't have put it better. Susie is a huge expert. She has been in Buckingham Palace. She has studied the crown jewels for a number of years and she will be sharing that experience and her views on what we can expect at the coronation with us. So don't miss it. Please join us then. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. If Jules Could Talk with Carol Walton is produced by Natasha Cowan, music and editing by Tim Thornton, graphics by Scott Bentley, illustration by Geordie Labanda, and you can find me on Instagram at Carol Walton. <laughs>